what I need to do basically for four days is teach you how to read the confessions. Because, well, it took me about 40 years to figure out how to do it. I mean, you can do it on your own, and everyone should try it once or twice on their own. But I want to teach you how to read it, and because Augustine is an ancient writer, uh, to know how to read it is to know the content as well. The so he lives three fifty four until um, uh, three. I mean four thirty. He dies in Hippo Regis with the Vandals having already surrounded its city. The first thing to know is that the confessions from the first sentence until the last is a continuous prayer. Question, had anyone ever done this before? Probably not. It's a continuous prayer from the first sentence until the last. It's done so well, and it's so beguiling that most readers, after a paragraph or two, forget that they're essentially eavesdropping on Augustine's prayer to God. Has anyone even pulled this off since the confessions is a good question. People have pulled off long prayers, but a long prayer that tries to solve as many different philosophical and theological problems. Not sure. It is sui generis. Uh, the closest thing we have in antiquity to something like the story of the confessions is uh, Olypius's The Golden Ass, also called The Transformations of Lucius. Uh, Olypius was a fellow North African, but about 175 years earlier than Augustine, who wrote a story about someone who was inquiring into um, occult things and got turned into a donkey and spends most of the story, most of the book, as a donkey following around different masters throughout the Mediterranean and with only a donkey's comment on the absurdity and foolishness of human life. And at the end of the story, thanks to the goddess Isis, uh, the donkey is restored to being uh, Lucius himself, and it ends with a wonderful prayer to the goodness of Isis. And it is kind of like the confession, but the confession far, far trans, transcends this. So it's a continuous prayer. And why is it called confessions? Well, one of the most persistent themes in Augustine from, yeah, writing the Confessions, which are written between 391 and 400, more about the biography later, by a biographical structure. It took him about 10 years to write it. Um, is that Augustine pays a lot of attention to semiotics. And a persistent theme is the relationship 
between sign and its referent. His Trinitarian theory works on, on this relationship. His anthropology works on this relationship. His scriptural hermeneutics works on this relationship. His moral theory works on this relationship. Uh, signs are for the purpose of calling attention to the referent. And therefore, those who love signs more than their reference are corrupt. Whether he's speaking of uh, soph sophistry or whether he's speaking of mystery religions or ordinary moral or immoral conduct. The function of signs is to turn the mind and the soul to the referent, to what is real, the real thing. And so for Augustine, um, human beings putting angels to one side are have the status of being imago. And an image is a sign. It's a sign that's real because in the order of signs, some signs are actually real things. Uh, so we say made unto the image. God. And the function of an image is to turn back to its prototype. The function of an image is to turn something. This is also true in the case of angels, but that's another metaphysical discussion on this part. An image becomes what it truly must be when it turns and mirrors its prototype. That is, it's referent. So uh, in the domain of images, when we say beings created in the image of God are angels and human beings. Angels only had one chance to turn either toward the referent, to their prototype, or to turn to themselves without even an elapsing of time. Human beings are more fortunate because we have a longer career of trying to make this turn. But human, human beings are turning things. And when we say likeness, um, uh, a likeness is. Uh, a similitudo is, is the proper term. Similitudo. And similitudo. And Aquinas follows Augustine on this, by the way. Uh, what does similitude add to imago? It adds moral perfection. A perfection of action. This is a perfection of being to be made unto the image of God. It tells us what kind of being we are. When that image turns toward its referent and its prototype, that action and other such actions that follow upon that put us in this category, similitude of. Early fathers had deep debates about why Genesis 1 says image and likeness. Is, is it just a kind of lawyerly thing? Say it three times or two times, but it's the same thing. And it was Augustine, I think, who led the breakthrough that similitudo is the action of a turning thing to its referent. And we could call this a moral category. 
Okay, so what does that have to do with the first point I want to make is that we're dealing with a continuing prayer. Uh, from the first sentence to the last sentence of the Confessions, we follow Augustine trying to turn. And even his unsuccessful efforts at the beginning to make this turn are done in the manner of a confession. It's a confession from beginning to end, because to confess is to turn from the image to its prototype. We even think about that in detective movies. It's time for you to make a confession. That is enough with the, of the words that you're using. Tell us what really happened. We want to know the truth. So the entire Confessions is structured sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, uh, along this model of confessing. And he takes his own life, his own actions, actions and lives of people around him, uh, and tries to understand the divine. Basically from the first sentence to the last of the confessions. It's his prayer. Uh, second thing I want to highlight, which is already maybe indicated on that handout. There are 13 books. I'm going to be dealing chiefly with uh, first eight, or first nine, excuse me. That's the autobiographical part. By the way, the whole thing is a confession to the very last line. And it will be answered, the last sentence. Uh, I'll say more about these in a couple of days. I'm going to look at these for a moment. I'm sure I know how they're organized. It took me a long time to figure out how they're organized. But uh, he quotes scripture several hundred times, either directly or elusively. He's quoting scripture all the time. Uh, one of the advantages of the Rex Warner translation is that Rex Warner puts direct quotations into italics. But even this was a failed attempt to do justice to uh, Augustine's use of scripture here, because I think Rex Warner only does about a third of them. Right. Prob probably the publisher said, we just can't keep doing that on this text. But, uh, so, here's the big thing. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's Luke 15. From beginning to end, that is to the end of nine, book nine. And you, you, you know the, uh, the parable that a man had two sons, a landowner. Uh, the youngest son impertinently asked for his inheritance and took himself to a foreign country and wasted it all in riotous living. And eventually he had to hire himself out as a doing the work of drudgery to some other landowner and was not even able to eat the 
the quality food he was feeding to the pigs. Look at all of these little bits of this story. You'll see them on almost every page of the confession. I will point out a few of them as we go. And at one moment, he says, I will, he stands up and says, I will return to the house of the father. And uh, goes back home. And uh, the father sees him from afar and rushes out to greet him and treats him like, uh, like royalty. The older brother is very disturbed by this because uh, why did you let this wastrel back into the farm who disobeyed you and uh, uh, misspent his fortune when I, your faithful son, uh, I didn't get a barbecue? Okay. So Augustine organizes the first nine books pretty strictly around Luke 15. And uh, it, it is an ancient story. It's not just a biblical story. Uh, I guess we can think of Homer, Homer's Odyssey. Question is how to get home, which is going to suggest even in book one of the confessions, man, at the very beginning, he's not home. You may think he's home, but he's not. And the reason I have the title is In the Suburbs of Babylon, uh, because uh, in Book 2, Chapter 3, he describes his own mother, Monica. Well, she's a Christian, but she's still lingering in the suburbs of Babylon, which means she's not home either. And Augustine's very critical of his domestic life, scandalously critical for a Roman. He is a Roman, by the way. And this part of North Africa was a central part of the Roman Empire for, well, from uh, the late second into the middle of the first century BC. He grew up in. Uh, what is now Algeria. Back then it was called the province of Numidia, but today it would be mostly Algeria, um, a little bit of Tunisia. Okay. This was the richest part of the Roman Empire by the time he was born in 354. It was the breadbasket of the empire. So over successive centuries after conquering Carthage, and conquering everyone else while they were at it, the Roman armies were given their uh, payoff, plots of farmland in North Africa. And where Augustine was born in Thagast was perfect land for actually mass farming. So by the time Augustine was born, there had already been two and a half centuries of land development in North Africa. It was exceedingly rich. Uh, but and, and his father was a minor official. They called them curiales, uh, sort of officials in Roman towns or towns under Roman law. Uh, it was part of the Senate, making, making decisions about 
the common good of that particular town. Uh, they had enough money to send him to good schools. Such good schools that he ends up um, around 380 holding the most prestigious position in the Roman Empire for anyone who's educated. He becomes master of imperial rhetoric in Milan. It would be like having an endowed chair at, mm. well, I don't know, maybe Elon Musk's university. <laughs> it was an important place. SpaceX, the endowed chair of SpaceX. Um, but he was not home. The, that theme begins right in book one. And he has to get home, and he's not sure how to do it. Uh, the other model he's using much more directly than Homer is Virgil, uh, the Aeneid. Because the Aeneid is the great political myth of Roman imperial life, which is that the survivors of Troy uh, get on ships and they wander around the Mediterranean, end up in North Africa, uh, where just by a hair, a hair's breadth, they don't settle down. Um, Aeneas almost marries uh, Dido, but it gets interrupted by the gods. And they end up in Sicily and then in Rome or Latium. Okay. And this is also a story about how to get home. And Augustine has many references to the Aeneid, actually, in, in the Confession. Especially, especially when we get to book five. So, uh, so, if I have to say, what is what are the three questions that he has to answer, and questions that are dramatized in the first nine books? Who is my father? Correct answer is not Patricius. Indeed, uh, Monica, in the 11th chapter of Book 1, confesses to her son that she wants God to be his father rather than Patricius, her husband. Uh, the least said about Patricius, the better. At least that seems to be the rule of thumb that Augustine was following in writing this story. Uh, so, who is my father? My real father, not my Roman father. Which is a scandalous question to ask as a, as a citizen of Rome. To say that about your pater, what he says about his pater here is uh, earth-shaking. Uh, and then the next question is, who will teach me how to be a son? Aphelios. And of course, the proper answer to that is God. But by way of secondary causality, it begins to happen in book five. It, it's Ambrose. Ambrose is his new daddy. Or is at least entitled to speak on behalf of his true father. And the third question is, who will teach me how to return to the house of the father, by which he means mystical Jerusalem? rather than Babylon, a theme that gets really well developed in the city of God uh, 20 years later.
So he makes it clear that he's born in Babylon. Thagast. Uh, Numidia. But it's Babylon. And what is Babylon for Augustine? It's the, it's the opposite of Jerusalem. Babylon is, of course, the confusion. Scripturally, the confusion. It means for Augustine any kind of a social order in which human beings are devoted to living their life not without God, but God being a mere instrument for what they can enjoy on this earth. That's Babylon, if you have to get a definition. That's why in the city of God later he'll call it the tearing city. Um, that is, what's below? It's the, it's the city in which people feather their own bed and make the best of life as long as it lasts. Uh, some Babylonians, including the Roman version of Babylon, do a little bit more because they're interested in conquering other people. A bit more ambitious. They, they will go down in history for that. But Babylon is simply that life in which both the bad angels and human beings as descendants of Cain make the best they can of this life. Inventing farm implements, inventing languages, inventing carriages of war. Well, just Babylon. And he says it right in book one. He's born in Babylon. And his mother was still wandering in the suburbs. And by the way, the Latin word for suburb doesn't mean like Fairfax from here. It would just be on the edge of town. That is the gas where he was born. Um, so he has to learn how to get back. That begins here. Uh, it culminates autobiographically in nine, right? And the last four books are, are really not autobiographical even though he's still praying as he's going. These books are his effort to find out what it meant for Moses to write in the beginning, the first sentence of Scripture. Because you can't figure out a journey unless you get to, like, what, was the be what is the beginning? which is likely to be your end as well. Whatever the principium is, it's your beginning and your end. And this turns, becomes such an obscure topic for Augustine that uh, his own autobiograph autobiography is no longer sufficient as a lesson. Uh, scripture has to teach him how to think of in the beginning. Okay. Uh, now, as for the structure, I'm pretty sure about this. You may have heard of the chiasm, an ancient literary device that anyone who went through anything like grammar and logic and rhetoric, the trivium, including St. Paul, 
Anyone who went through the trivium learned about chiastic structures, especially for the purpose of rhetoric. Okay. A, a chiasm is simply a crossing over. So I give an example here of, uh, well, first, President Kennedy's famous speech. What, January 1961, in a snowstorm just down the street, in which his famous words were perfect chiasm, whether he knew this or not, but his speechwriter must have. So a chiasm, first proposition, ask not what your country, second proposition, can do for you. And now there's a chiasm. The chiasm here is a silent one. But what you, now that's B primed. The third part of that structure is B brought back with value added meaning. And you know, uh, Kennedy's father, Joe Sr., actually got into Harvard because he went to Boston Latin and apparently was terrible in every subject but classical language. Joe Sr. Who would have known? So here's the one from Colossians. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15 and following. It's Christological. The firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So A is basically in create logos b he is before all things and in him all things hold together well it draws an implication for what it would mean to be in create logos and there's a chiasm and the chiasm is to created logos to christ right true god and true man and so now we get b and a back with added meaning. B prime, he is the head of the body, the church. A prime, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. Perfect Pauline chiasm. This methodology was, was taught in the trivium, and Augustine learned it quite well. So uh, here's how he put the confessions together on the basis of chiasm. So, we begin in book one, and let's call this infancy that is a coming into being. Um, he's born, and given his family and their resources and their ambitions, he was weaned in classical education, because the beginning of a turning thing that is an, an image, you got to speak to it. They don't turn unless you speak. So he is like all of the sons of men. He is awakened by speech. And he explains in book one his initial difficulties figuring out what he was supposed to do and how to make sounds, and he got the hang of it pretty quick. Uh, the date that corresponds to book one is 354 AD. Uh, 
Book two, he's in a garden. And in any of this literature, especially Jewish and Christian, but also some pagan literature, if something's happening in a garden, you want to pay attention to what's going on. They could have put the event anywhere else, but they put it in a garden for, for all sorts of literary, theological, and philosophical reasons. Um, at this time, we can say it's about 370, maybe a little bit earlier. His parents have sent him to a prep school in a little town called Madura, north of the Gast, maybe a two-day walk. So this, this is not the whole trivium. This is just the beginning of it. It's, it's like a prep school to get into... Uh, a serious school, which for him is going to be Carthage, right? which is a fair distance away to the north and to the east. Um, and Augustine, in book two, begins to describe his, well, his cooperation in the sins of others and his uh, pretty serious appropriation of the sins of others. The, um, in, in classical world, the first meaning of our word rule or regula, Father Dominic was just talking about rule, is, is not a precept. The first meaning is a rule is a paradigm. That is, it's something to be imitated or emulated. It's like the rule of St. Benedict. I mean, there's 70-some chapters with precepts and stuff, but why they just call it the rule is because you're, it, by following the rule, you are imitating the life of the apostles. And who is the person you especially must imitate? Who is the paradigm? It's the abbot. So for Augustine, remember he found a a monastery that eventually becomes a religious order that uh, the sons of Dominic are somewhat dependent upon, the rule of St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine understood all of this. I mean that when you say about a rule, the first thing is what is to be imitated? And he goes into the stormy seas of adolescence and he begins imitating very quickly. At one point in book two, he calls it the muddy stream of Eve. His parents, as I already said, were, his mother was Christian. By the way, Augustine was never a pagan. And he explains it this way, that when he was a boy, his mother gave, told him about the name of Jesus Christ. And he never forgot it. That is, uh, even during his time as a Manichaean, he was willing to do business with the Manichaeans because they used the name Jesus Christ. Manichaeans were not regarded as pagan. Well, that's a long story. But no, Augustine was never a pagan. He always kept in mind that there is the Savior named Jesus Christ. But he is, he is deep into the... Uh, following his models, his teachers, and his friends. Uh, book three, 
uh, gives us uh, Carthage. He sent from the prep school to Carthage, about 371 thereabouts, where he discovers mind, as he puts it. He's whoring and wenching. He confesses to shagging a girl in the church at night. Uh, he belongs to a group called the Wreckers. Sounds like a California motorcycle club. Uh, and he is, but he discovers mind. And it is in book three, he reads Cicero's Hortentius, which is a plea for wisdom. And he says, I felt myself going up. That where am I to go? I have to go up. Which was a good insight, actually. He, he, he later has to reject it. For Philippians, let us, let us strain forth toward the future and our reward, not being beamed up like Scotty. But he discovers mind and uh, falls in with the Manichaeans, who were beam me up Scotty type, right? The Manichaean uh, ritual and cosmology was that the original uh, uh, stardust of the one got trapped in female emotions by an eon named Sophia, and the thing called mind had descended into brute matter and was trapped there by Jehovah, the Old Testament God, who can't stop giving commands about doing bodily things, like having sex and multiplying, and what to eat and what not to eat. And so the Manichaean belief was uh, one has to release the stardust. Now, they thought the stardust was, was gaseous, and you'll see that at the beginning of chapter book four, because he, he becomes a Manichaean uh, uh, initiate. And he says, book, chapter 1, On the other hand, we would be trying to get clean of all this filth by carrying food to those people who are called the elect and the holy ones, so that in the factory of their own stomachs they would turn this food into angels and gods by whose aid we should be liberated. So apparently the Manichaean elect asked of their initiates to wait table, and then they would fart, and the initiates, the catechumens, would smell the fart, because the way back to the one is gaseous. Not, it's not pure spirit, it's gaseous. Yeah. He doesn't stick with the Manichaeans for that long. Maybe 10 years. Uh, and so... In book three, he's already asking questions, my boy. The Manichaean cosmology and astronomy are insufficient for. Book four is his treatise on love. And the center of book four is the death of a friend who has become another self. And uh, the friend wants to be baptized before he dies. Augustine tries to talk him out of it on the chance the friends survive and baptism won't spoil the party. And the friend dies 
and he has a long meditation on actually using structures of the songs to understand human desire and restlessness. And in book five, there's the key is because in book five, he decides that the Manichaeans are insufficient for what he wants to know. And it's the book of three cities. Augustine actually leaves North Africa. Uh, so he goes from Carthage to, uh, to Rome, uh, just like Aeneas, without telling his mother. And gets to Rome, and he's teaching in a Manichaean prep school. So he's not totally out of the Manichaean connection. But he becomes angry because the Manichaean kids will not pay him after his lecture. So he goes to Milan. So book five goes Carthage, Rome, Milan. And that's where he got the top job. Master of Imperial Rhetoric which was to write speeches for the army and for the imperial retinue. By the way, it looks like it was a Manichaean in the, in the Roman officialdom, probably in Ravenna, who got him that job. But it's in, it's, it's in Milan that he meets Ambrose. So it's a crossing over, a, a literal crossing over, from North Africa to Italy, and from his father, who had, who had just died a couple of years earlier, Patricius, to a new daddy, who's Ambrose. And Augustine actually calls him that. And at the end of Book 5, he decides, what the heck, I think I'll become a Catholic catechumen. We'll see how this works out. Right? So this, this is the chiasm. And every one of these books later is the previous book prime. So book six is on the community that has been gathering around Ambrose, a very interesting community, young philosophers, quasi-Platonists, uh, very skilled literary people, and uh, uh, devout Christians, all of whom gather around Ambrose as their teacher and as their guide, and Augustine becomes part of that crowd. So look at what it is. His friend back in um, North Africa. Now, new friends. Um, book three was on Carthage. Book seven is his reading of the Platonists. This, it's here that he gets the beginning of the solution to the problem of evil as, as Abends, not as ends, being, but something away from being, and uh, doing a lot of philosophical work, but decides that the philosophers haven't taught him how to get home because they haven't taught him humility. Book eight, conversion, goes right with book two. Book two is Augustine going into the stormy seas of society and uh, imitating his friends. Book eight is conversions. And I, I count 11 conversions in this story. So there's Augustine and his best friend, Olypius. There are two philosophers, 
whose conversion stories are recounted in Book 8. Two courtiers and uh, their brides-to-be. That is, two guys who are working in the imperial court in Ravenna. Uh, it's sort, of, it sort of like working at the executive office building. And their fiancé. Convert because they read the life of Antony. And all four of them go to monasteries, different monasteries. Ah, and we already had Augustine's friend in book four convert and take him. Oh, there's another conversion that's really crucial here. It's the story of Antony himself, right? An illiterate man who walks into church after the death of his parents and hears the priest saying, um, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, uh, and follow me. And then the two biggies. Augustine's conversion and his best friend Olympias. So I count, oh, oh, I forgot the big one. It's Monica's conversion. Now, Monica's conversion is suggested in eight, but it really is narrated in nine. She was still in the suburbs of Babylon, but something important happens. So, anyway, in eight, uh, he is going to take the water of baptism. And he and Olypius, and nine, remember what book one is? Book one is coming into the light of day, being born. First event of book nine, baptism. He and Olypius take the waters of baptism, baptized by St. Ambrose in Milan. Um, and then Augustine and his mother were going to go back to North Africa. Probably what was on his mind, he wanted to found a monastery. Uh, and I think he had Hipporegius in view right away, because Hipporegius was an important Roman naval town on North African coast. In other words, there's plenty of money around and people, recruits. He and his mother have a vision at Ostia Antica, an old port city outside of Rome, and a beautiful discussion in Book 9 of they have an almost vision of the one, to use a Plotinian term. And what's really extraordinary about his recounting of their vision is that it was all done in conversation. It was dialectical. And so all that effort of reading the Hortentius and trying to go up, and then the mystical follies of the uh, Manichaeans, trying to get up and out. Well, he and Monica were given grace that vision here, which is having your eyes opened, like the baby. And Monica, long well, and short, gets sick and is dying. And Augustine writes a beautiful tribute to the sanctity of his mother, who is finally a saint. And why? Not because she had an almost vision of the one at Ostia, but rather because she was happy not to go back to North Africa. And why does that matter? Because being from good pagan stock in North Africa, she knows that at the time of death, you have to be buried. You have to be buried with your ancestors. 
you won't get fed by grandchildren unless you're in there with the libation tube with your mother and father and relatives. Very pagan. And she says, I want nothing of it. I've been cured of that hankering of being fed uh, with the rest of the family dead. And Augustine gives a wonderful payoff. She is finally converted, no longer in the suburbs of Babylon. Uh, she dies, and Augustine takes off. End, end of the biography, arranged around that key. So, now I have some things to say about these first couple of books. Who are the protagonists of this story? I would say there are two protagonists. The first is Augustine, and the second is God Almighty. And how you can put these two protagonists together, talking to each other, so to speak, is part of what's charming about this story. So here is Augustine reporting himself in the first few sentences of the Confessions. And speaking of God, of course because this is all a prayer. Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power, and thy wisdom is infinite. And man wants to praise you, man who is only a small portion of what you have created, and who goes about carrying with him his own mortality, the evidence of his own sin, and evidence that thou resisteth the proud. Yet, Still, man, this small portion of creation wants to praise you. You stimulate him to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. Grant me, O Lord, to know and understand which should come first, prayer or praise. It's interesting there, he introduces... Um, a distinction between two kinds of restlessness. And much of books one, two, and three are on this problem. So we talk about the inquieta anima, the restlessness of the soul. Well, one aspect of restlessness for Augustine, let's call it R1, is perfectly natural. And unfortunately, too many philosophers and other wise men want to extinguish it. But it would be true death to the soul if we ever extinguished the first kind of restlessness. The first kind of restlessness is by creation. And it's that our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. Um, Sort of like a Hank Williams song, Why Should I Feel Lonesome If No One's Lonesome For Me? That there's, there's a natural understanding that uh, there is something to be achieved. And there is someone who can answer. We're not just on our own. That's natural. Very good restlessness. Uh, you would have to completely deform the human condition to get rid of it. But the restlessness sub two is another one. And that's inquietude of the soul, uh, the cause of which he calls the triplex sin from first letter of John. That is, 
pride, lust, and curiosity, which creates in the soul a desire for constant change, uh, which the human soul can manipulate and manage and govern for its own benefit. Pride, forgetting that you're not God. Lust, loving yourself above all other things, which means all other things are lovable just as satellites of yourself. And curiosity, which is you're already in doing that, leaning forward to doing the next act of rightful lust. And this Augustine calls circular. You actually get nowhere with it. It, it, it begins and ends the same way every time. And he will call it a kind of exhaustion. Or I think we would call it anxiety. Not restlessness like our one, but anxiety. You feel like you're never one with yourself. You're coming apart all the time. And it's on that question that he begins to confess his life up to the time of Carthage. The triplex in. But the bigger picture is this. And if you read the whole Confessions, you sort of learn about it. That is discernment of spirits. I mean, every monastic group, every religious order, anyone who's serious about the spiritual life has to learn how to discern one kind, one aspect of restlessness from the other. The fact that you're lonely could be really good. And... Uh, I would say if you read the Confessions as a kind of spiritual lesson with a heavy moral emphasis, this is a principal thing, distinguishing the two kinds of Muslims. So uh, when, uh, listen, when did I begin this? About an hour. Okay. Uh, I want to take a look at... Uh, I want to look at the problem of the infants in Book 1.7. And I want to look at that pear tree incident. Um, and I want to look at his grief in Book 4. All will be concrete instances of trying to discern these two kinds of restlessness. Um, because when we do the chiasm and come over to here, he begins to have uh, New Testament categories for this stuff. Well, he has them from the beginning, but he, he lets us in on how he learned from Ambrose to properly interpret scripture for doing this discernment. Okay, any questions? What is the most important thing for my own virtue that I can take away? That's between you and Augustine. And I, I, I mean that seriously because uh, one of the breakthroughs of this book, civilizationally, this is meant to be read silently. Psalms are not meant to be done saucily, right? And that's why he has a nice even critique of too much psalmody is too beautiful and enchanted soul, too musical. When he goes and meets Ambrose, this is at the end of book five, the beginning of book six, he is thunderstruck 
that Augustine reads scripture silently. I mean, uh, Ambrose, excuse me, reads it silently. Because remember, Augustine's trained to be uh, a rhetorician. There, there's not silent rhetoric, at least not in the old trivium. Okay. So, uh, and what does this mean? Well, for Augustine, he was immediately struck. It means that there's meaning here that's deeper than the rhetorical performance. And the Confessions is written as a model of narrating his own life in terms of what he perceived in Ambrose. It means you and I need to read this silently, which is, which is not the ancient model. He's, he's breaking with a 2,000-year-old model here. And that, that's why I'm saying, and at different times in your life, you're going to learn different things. Quick follow-up. I think it's interesting. He begins with infancy, and this is point of silence, because in Latin, quick in pause means not speaking. Not speaking, right. right. And at the end of... Well, in Book 9, when he and Monica are carrying on the conversation, and they get right to something close to the Godhead, and they go silent. And Augustine's term for that, and he uses it again in Books 12 and 13, and much later in later commentaries on Genesis, angels pray without syllables. So whenever you see Augustine making a phrase like, and here the syllables have to end, it's where there's not the infancy, which is untutored silence, but a tutored silence that comes from uh, the Holy Spirit. Now he could, you know, he himself said that when he was baptized in uh, Milan, in uh, 381, uh, he, uh, excuse me, 387, he, he says, and I was cured of the vice of rhetoric. And you know how much he ended up writing after this? <laughs> what, four commentaries on Genesis 1, uh, commentaries on Psalms, on almost every book in the New Testament, and his sermons, the extant sermons, which are maybe one-third of his sermons, are a million and a half words. So he didn't give up rhetoric, but he gave up rhetoric as he had the function of it, which is to, which is Babylonian. The function of rhetoric is to praise the empire. So in the same way Virgil writes the Aeneid, praise Augustus, yep. he writes the Confessions, yeah. to praise God. Yeah, to get home. He the talks same. about himself a lot, though. He does. He does. And I wonder if he fully understood that there would be so many centuries of people reading those conversations. We have time for one more brief question. Brief? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, is, what would, what would um, regarding the first kind of restlessness, what is the... You mentioned that it was good or okay in some sense. Well, I'll go back to book one tomorrow. But he says, for example, he loved Latin, hated Greek. But he really took to Latin, and he loved the structures of it. Nothing wrong with that. 
He was he was actually learning about something objectively good. And um, he um, so th- th- there are natural desires. Desires that we're going to have because we're created by God and we should have these desires. But many of them are bent. And he has to discern which one, which one is which. So another example, in book three, when he picks up the Hortentius. And I'm here in Carthage just studying rhetoric. And Cicero is urging Hortentius to leave rhetoric behind because Hortentius was a kind of lawyer guy. And pursue wisdom, and Augustine felt it. Yeah, that's what I want to pursue as well. That's our one stuff. Let's thank our speaker. Okay.